I've been running, getting to the kick. Dog, you ain't a hundred, this a hundred. Let me demonstrate. If she ain't got brains, then I ain't trying to penetrate. And if you ain't a stand up need you, you could get your dinner ate. I ain't buying all that real shit. Dog, you benefit. Took her on a dinner date. Now we on the interstate. Might be a rookie in the game, but I've been a great. And we about autonomy, dog. We ain't trying to integrate. Man, we ain't tryna integrate Was broke back then, now the youngest seeing different kick We don't go all feelings, we just make sure that the bend is straight And if you ain't an intellect, then you can't get a penetrate Local Niji, now I'm getting love all in different states Got a Niji, if you ain't got scars, then you can't relate That was Integrate by Ja Bricks Welcome to On The Wake Up Radio You are now tuned in to the Sovereign Creed Show We don't just discuss the problems, we offer the solutions I'm your host, J.I. Lee J.I. Lee, excuse me, can't even say my own name today What's going on? J.I. Lee Shiamaru Shout out to our producer, Cindy Ashby For making this possible If you haven't done so already, make sure you go sign up for www.otwtube.com So you can join our community of melanated aboriginal content creators where your voice can be heard and you never have to worry about censorship. For today's episode of the Sovereign Creed Show, we introduce to you the antidote tribal agriculture. As we are witnessing a mass migration of aboriginal American families leaving urban blue states like California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, and returning to the rural South that their grandparents and grandparents and great-grandparents once fled because of Jim Crow laws, we are also seeing another migration, a return to Aboriginal farming. With the emphasis on health and safety, many families are trading into city life for the farm life. When you also take into consideration how GMO produce and processed foods have created a health epidemic that far surpasses the current pandemic that's currently unfolding, many families have taken matters into their own hands. And when it comes to eliminating chronic ailments such as cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease, with the mass increase in genealogy research, many of these same families are reclaiming their ancestral lands that were once stolen as a result of the Homestead Act of 1862. This single piece of legislation granted 160 acres of stolen indigenous land to 1.6 million white settlers for free under the condition that they would improve it. And when they say improve it or said improve it, They were referring to Western-style agriculture. More on that later. The Kincaid Amendment of 1904 granted 640 acres to new homesteaders settling in western Nebraska. In 1909, an amendment of the Homestead Act of 1862 was passed and doubled the allotted acreage from 160 to 320 acres for white citizens settling in marginal areas. Overall, the Homestead Act ran rampant until the 1930s, where it shifted to places like Alaska until 1986. From 1900 to 1997, a whopping 97% of Aboriginal farmers lost their land. A report conducted in 2002 by the USDA.gov stated that only 4% of 
of Aboriginal Americans owned private agricultural land. In that same report, the USDA.gov claimed that all of the private acres of agricultural land owned across the entire United States of only 2% was held by Aboriginal farmers. Check this out. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington, in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. This country, through the homesteading and through head rights, they could get free land to, in whatever corners they want, they could claim. When Thomas Jefferson came, Thomas Jefferson got, he had got over 100,000 free acres of land. Uh, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson and, uh, and, uh, and Washington, they all got over 100,000. Patrick Henry got over 65,000 acres of free land. They got free land. Yeah, and when, when the big land rush came after uh, after after the end of the Civil War, they, and 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 we had 26 million Europeans poured in this country, then they and they opened up the Oklahoma Territory. White immigrants picked up over two million acres of free land in 24 hours. They didn't pay for it. Now that land that was passed has been passed on. Let's use that. All that land, all the resources, the timber, the gold, the silver, the chrome, the balsite, has multiplied in value and double in value to triple in value every 20 years and it's been passed on through inheritance from one white generation to the next. Mm -hmm. So consequently, they have control over the land, the resource, and everything. And I'm gonna say it, farming is a white man's game. And the top 10 banks in the United States, they're guilty by not lending money to black farmers the way that they lend it to white farmers. That's true. Between 1910 and 1997, black farmers lost about 90% of the land that they owned, whereas white farmers lost about 2%. And no, it wasn't because white farmers were 88% better at farming. Internal studies at the USDA found that the USDA authorities had routinely discriminated against African-American farmers. The government, who didn't treat it as worse than the dirt on the ground we're sitting on, investigated this up in my local county office. It took 387 days to process a black farmer's loan application. 387 days? 387 days on average. So you miss a whole, a whole year of planting. There you go. And how long does it take to process a white farmer? 30 days. 30? <laughs> Less than 30 days. And that's, that's where the problem is. And if I can't get it there, I can't get it anywhere. That's it. That's it. That's the yeah. United States Department of Agriculture, the last plantation. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they haven't changed, you know, even after uh, the national lawsuit.
1997, Timothy Pigford and 400 other African-American farmers sued the USDA for systemic discrimination against black farmers. The farmers won, but the payout took 11 years and required ongoing litigation. It was merely an apology and an acknowledgement of guilt yeah. by the United States Department of Agriculture. And my grandfather, Thomas Boer, used to say, every step you take, every step you make, requires land ownership. So you can either be walking on your own, or you can be walking on somebody else's, and they can have you trespassing and locked up. Wow. So the choice is yours. He said the land was the only way to be free. Congratulations, boys. You made it through another Taco Tuesday. Back in the bucket till next week. Won't those vegetables go bad? Nope, they're genetically modified to stay fresh. Just don't ask how old the Jello is. Overreactor.org warns that over half of the vegetables sold in this country are genetically modified organisms whose effect on humans is unknown. The black communities disproportionately suffer under the mass poisoning of the water supply. And also, by the way, of the food supply. That's a whole other discussion. But if you look at the food that is available in black communities, typically, they are, it, it is food that is almost engineered to cause cancer, to cause diabetes, to cause heart disease. It is food that is essentially poison. Today on the Sovereign Creed Show, we welcome two Aboriginal farmers to our guest panel as we discuss tribal agriculture, the lingering effects of the Homestead Act, the decline of Aboriginal farmers, the evolution of GMOs, and the solution to the chronic health problem plaguing our community. For our first guest, we welcome Ty Lee Kwayar Shiamaru. Ty Lee is an Aboriginal farmer, edible landscape desire, designer, excuse me, garden coach, natural soap maker, and herbalist hailing from Brooklyn, New York. While working as a project manager for the Insight Garden Program at three California state prisons, she was responsible for rehabilitating incarcerated youth, women, and men by helping them reconnect with self, community, and nature. As a landscape designer for Five Star Capital Landscape and nonprofit Sustainable Heroes Organization, Tylee developed complex and multifaceted native drought tolerant planting schemes, site planning, staging, and layout of plant material, oversaw specifications for residential and commercial properties, irrigation installation, and completion for countless projects within the Sacramento, California community. Prior to her work in California, she spent four years serving in various capacities in the state of Georgia, which included landscape consultation and garden coaching through her organization in Good Hands Foodscaping, oversaw herb production and distribution for the Wild Center at their Center Creek location, and managed a three-acre farm site and aquaponics house. She will lead on development, marketing, and a promotion of GTC's sustainable urban agro-food forest and learn-in-farm. Prior to her extensive work in agriculture, Tylee spent 20 years in education, from elementary to the college level as an art teacher and adjunct professor. It was during this experience 
that she first managed the daily operations of the JBB Bumblebee Garden, organizing crop plantings, maintenance of grounds, developed programming for students and classes during school days and for the after-school JBB Garden Club in Virginia. Tyleek holds a master's in art teaching from Lander University. Currently, she is a renowned expert in indigenous food science through her affiliation with Arnas Aboriginal University. Please give a warm welcome to Tylee Cuellar, she Amaru. Then we have our next guest, Jael Obatala Shiamaru Bay, who is an Aboriginal farmer, indigenous naturopathic doctor, and jurist affiliated with the Aboriginal Republic of North America. Hailing from Clemson, South Carolina, his experience in growing food during his childhood tilling gardens with his father in his grandparents' backyard paved the way for him once he attended the University of South Carolina State to study civil engineering technology. While there, he chartered a student organization during the spring of 2016, which hosted Eat Well to Live Well workshops for students, faculty, and staff. He also launched sustainable Going Green initiatives and would eventually build gardens at local schools through sustainable—excuse me—through a partnership with the Regional Medical Center. After winning a business competition, the student organization would eventually start an organic food garden on campus under his influence. After partnering with a local Black-owned pharmacy and local farmers, they were able to combine efforts in order to reach more people with food on and off campus for two years prior to the pandemic shutting things down. An advocate of indigenous food science, Jot L is currently working on a program development to support lifestyle change and cultivating relationships within local community, regionally with Arna and even abroad. With those who have resources to enable the objectives on a large scale and who also share the same vision to serve and rebuild our communities. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Jot L Obatala Shiamaru Bay. Peace to the God and goddesses. First of all, I want to say that was a mouthful. <laughs> Second of all, I want to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. I have tremendous respect for the both of you, and I appreciate your commitment to advocating indigenous food science. You both have some very impressive resumes. So let's uh, let's get started. Speaking of indigenous food science, can you please explain to the audience what that actually entails and how the Aboriginal University differs from the process of regulating Western style food quality used by government agencies such as the U.S. Department of Agricultural Agriculture, excuse me, a.k.a. the USDA and the Food and Drug Administration, a.k.a. the FDA. We'll start with Ty Lee and then we'll uh, we'll have Ja. L, uh, follow up. Thank you. Um, peace to everyone. Um, appreciate you having me on. Um, well, I'll first start with um, when we talk about indigenous food science, um, it's a way of offering a full guide to proper nutrition, to supplements, to exercise, ethnogenic, based in nutrition and nutritional psychology. And um, we want to try to learn when we are, we're learning about indigenous food science, we try to learn about what's the, the most nutritious foods for our bodies. 
our carbon-based bodies. We also learn also about what's the worst foods and why. Um, when we talk about indigenous food science, also we're talking about nutrition. Um, nutrition is a really interesting word. Um, the, the way that our chief kind of breaks it down is that it's, a, it's the root of nutrition is to keep each cell healthy. And in doing this, nutrition is about getting your cells, which um, has to do with carbohydrates. And um, we're talking about carbon, we're talking about oxygen and water. And um, so our cells really need glucose, and which is like fruit sugars, vegetable sugars, so that it can go through a process. And this process um, it involves glucose and it helps to break things down. Um, one of the key words for nutrition is carbohydrates. And um, we, we do forget sometimes that that is really key for our, our bodies to have that in our cells. And um, these are also optional fuel um, for the cells to start the process of nu um, nurturing cells. So, um, but I, I do want to say about learning indigenously how to eat food, um, it, it goes back to there's two, two, two men that we learn about that had something to do with um, the way that agriculture is currently uh, done in our, in our system. Uh, one, one gentleman was uh, Lieberg, and he, uh, he was a German uh, chemist, and he was responsible for um, this theory of, of nitrogen being in the, uh, very important to be in the soil. And um, he kind of argued about the, that the plants um, need nitrogen um, compounds. And um, for a long time, we, well, how I was taught when I was in um, agriculture school was that nitrogen was king. Like you had to have that in your soil at all times for your plants to be green, to be healthy. And um, that kind of thinking or that theory um, has really been proven not true. And um, many agricultural, far I mean, uh, Aboriginal farmers like myself, we don't follow Lieberg um, because it's not a true statement for all plants that, that need this nitrogen. It's really just for legumes. And, um, and so we believe in using things like limestone and granite and to strengthen the soil. So there's a, that's a big difference in how we grow because everything starts from the soil. Everything, you know, any seed, Will, will grow, but it will grow better when the soil is actually um, kind of cultivated in a way for it to grow to its best um, capacity. Um, the other scientist uh, or doctor was um, Hensel, and he was a, a German agricultural chemist, and we learned about him in the, in the process of um, understanding where, where he comes from with t teaching us about putting minerals in the soil. Um, he was the, one of the inventors of um, minerals um, and fertilizer for like um, rock flour. And he suggested um, the, that there's an underlying cause of disease um, because of the lack of minerals in soil. And so he was actually um, Liebig's uh, adversary. So we kind of go more towards that uh, teaching where we're really cultivating our soil from the, from the bottom up with minerals. Because if you don't have minerals in the soil, it's not gonna get in your food. Um, and I, I can go on and on about the food science, but one, one thing we do learn also when we talk about indigenous food science um, is, is how we eat. There's a psychology to how we eat. And we have um, kind of formed really bad habits in this system, um, following um, Euro-Asian types of uh, 
eating styles, and um, it has it's been, really been destroying us. Um, and we learn about basic biology when we, we talk about indigenous food science, and it goes down to the molecular level in foods, and it's why we focus on what foods are the best for our carbon-based bodies. And that's really what we are focusing on as we grow things. What is the best for our, you know, tropical, we, we come from a tropical warm climate. And so what are those foods that were found here originally that work best for us? So I, I'll stop there because um, I don't want to go too long in it, but I, there's a lot more to it. So I don't know if Jael wants to add something. Thank, thank, thank you so much, Tylee. I hope everybody has their, their notepad and is taking notes. But if you don't, don't worry, there will be a replay. Peace, God, Jael. All right, what's going on? Peace, family. It's Brother Jael here. Uh, first, I just want to thank you for the opportunity, you know, holding this space and holding this platform for us to, uh, you know, gather uh, higher education and teach others, right? And uh, I'm also really grateful to share this uh, stage with the sister. I'm really inspired by I just want to tell you now, I'm really inspired by you. You know, the work that you've accomplished over the years is like pretty much the vision that I've had and that I've been you know, working on the foundation towards and just basically, you know, serving the community. Uh, so I, I really want to just take this time to commend you for, you know, the years and effort and diligence that you've put in and um, and just, you know, as I say, give you flowers on stage or while you're alive. Yeah, so uh, the question was, um, what is indigenous food science, you know, as we learned from the Aboriginal University and under our... Uh, Aboriginal Medical Association. And so before I answer that question, uh, you know, I'll, I'll state that in the jungle, what one gorilla knows, every gorilla knows. And so I say that, say that, um, you know, a lot of what the sister just shared, uh, I, I don't want to repeat, but definitely would like to highlight, you know, some things uh, and, and emphasize. So, you know, what is indigenous food science? Uh, so as we learn uh, or as we come to learn, most of our traditional eating habits either come from, you know, slavery or traditions or just basically going with, you know, the societal trend. And so um, indigenous food science is about literally like eating scientific and eating in accordance with simply your God-given nature. You know, a lot of our eating habits and, uh, and lifestyles simply go against our, our very own God-given nature. And so um, indigenous food science is, is really brings one into awareness uh, as it relates to uh, respecting that first law of nature and ultimately like that first commandment, which all has to do with love and you know, love, learning how to properly love yourself and to take care of yourself. And so, um, you know, the concepts discussed in indigenous food science have been reduced very simply to um, distinctively identifying, you know, the types of food that we should eat and stay away from. And so those foods are categorized and, and two or categorized as such being uh, carbon based foods and nitrogen based foods. Right. And so your carbon based foods basically describe all plants and animals that are a part of the original creation, right? And so one thing that we also learn is that, you know, not only are we melanated beings, but even the structure of our um, 
uh, of our, well, well, let me just say us being melanated beings, we are carbon based, you know, in comparison to some of our uh, counterparts, um, as the sister mentioned, Eurasian and um, other ethno um, uh, or biodiversities. And so, again, you have carbon based foods and nitrogen based foods. And so your nitrogen based foods are the foods that are um, genetically modified, you know, man made. You know, for example, um, you know, there's a bunch of seedless fruits out here. And obviously, if it was a part of the original creation, you know, uh, for it to exist at this point in time, it had to come from a seed. And so, you know, even within that, we, we learned that, you know, the way that they sterilize these fruits to become seedless is through a, a magnesium inhibitor, right? And so we have to be mindful of, you know, consuming foods or consuming uh, seedless fruits because, you know, as they say, you are what you eat. And right now with so much biological warfare going on, you know, we need not to be even playing with, you know, taking that lightly because, you know, it's real out here. And so um, indigenous food science to me also describes, as the sister said, you know, um, building from the ground up. Right. And so uh, we learn about the brother, Dr. Julius Hensel, uh, you know, who advocated uh, carbon based fertilizers, uh, also known as stone meal. And, you know, so for, for those of you who are going to be growing your own food, uh, I want to this is definitely a note that you should make and seeking fertilizer that is um, also known as volcanic ash rock or azomite as a-z-o-m-i-t-e and you know you can just google that and find that and so that is a carbon-based fertilizer um, in comparison to the nitrogen-based fertilizers that has been globally adopted you know since the since the um, the teachings of uh, Justice von Liebig as the sister mentioned and so um, I think the last thing that I'll mention here is that you know, right now we are in this moment where, you know, we're becoming more self-aware and we have to be very intentional about, you know, what we're consuming, not only for ourselves, but for the generations that are coming after us, because what we're consuming is based on what we're growing. You know, we, we now are serving the role of advancing our, uh, our heritage and our lineages uh, DNA, right? So uh, the types of, you know, within indigenous food science, the types of um, fruits and vegetables that we should be growing are heirlooms, right? And so what is an heirloom? An heirloom is a, a type of plant, fruit, or vegetable that has not been genetically uh, altered or cross um, crossbred in any form of fashion. And so in other words, an heirloom is, is the same type of fruit that was mentioned in Genesis when the word said, uh, let every seed go forth and bear fruit according to its kind, right? And so um, at this point, you know, when we get our foods from the market, uh, even organic, you know, all commercially uh, sourced fruits and vegetables, you know, that are in our grocery stores are being grown in these uh, nitrogen-based fertilized soils and so as this, the one thing about nitrogen is that it's 
extremely toxic to the melanated body, right? In other words, it destabilizes electricity. And so um, one thing, the last thing that I'll, I'll, I'll mention here um, is a bit of research that's mentioned in the indigenous food science textbook that we have available from our medical association and from our, our university. But so it just highlights that uh, there was some research done on comparing um, crops that were grown using nitrogen-based fertilizers versus uh, no nitrogen-based fertilizer. And so uh, ultimately, uh, I'm gonna just read the last three points here uh, on, on the conclusion of the research. Um, the use of chemical fertilizers nitrogen-based leads to the following evil consequences. It poisons the soil, destroying beneficial soil bacteria, earthworks, and uh, humus. It creates unhealthy, unbalanced, mineral-deficient plants lacking resistance to disease and insect pests, leading to the spraying menace in an effort to preserve these defective specimens. It also leads to disease among animals and men who feed on these abnormal plants and their products. And so uh, this is the reason why they have to create genetically modified um, uh, fruits and, and vegetables, because the plants that are supposed to have their natural immunity from minerals that are in the soil, they don't have it. So they have to spray, you know, pesticides and, you know, just a bunch of stuff. So, you know, as we get back to or, or come into, you know, this indigenous food science thing, it, it, it literally starts from the ground up and. You know, as we do attain heirloom seeds, now we're growing these fruits and these vegetables in carbon-enriched soils. So now we're improving the the, the genetic, um, uh, what would you say, uh, generations of seeds, you know, to improve, you know, over each harvest, right? And so that directly translates to our very own reality as human beings, you know. Um, I think it's the, the study is called uh, study of well, epigenetics, which is the study of environmental factors influencing DNA um, uh, codes and expressions. And basically, you know, when they say you are, um, let's say diabetes or cancer runs in your family. Well, the reality is that the, the lifestyle and the food, but that lifestyle and that food causes the genetic expression of disease. And so if you take that in comparison to, you know, say, um, you know, a, a young family that are both carbon based, um, you know, eating for some time, and then they have a child, raise them up to have um, to be consuming, you know, on their indigenous Aboriginal diet, and they have, uh, and that and that child, you know, has a child with an, uh, another uh, person, and just imagine, you know, just the improvement and the expressions of our DNA, you know. So uh, it's definitely something that we have to, like I said, think from the ground up and then also see in the long run, like, the benefit of exactly what we're doing and, in, in the, in, you know, being that intentional and being that self-aware. Thank you, Jael. I uh, just want to let you know, uh, Soul Traveler, I see your hand up. Uh, we have a lot of uh, questions to get through. Uh, if you could just write your question down, we will have a Q&A session uh, once this uh, this section is complete and I will make sure that uh, you have an opportunity to uh, ask a question or, or, or give your comment. Uh, thank you for that, Tylee and Jael. Um, see, we've got about 90 more minutes, so we're going to have to get through this. Uh, we've got a, that's a lot of great stuff. hope everyone is, is taking notes. Uh, next question, uh, Tylee. 
You have a very extensive background relating to agriculture and landscape design, but I want to touch on your experience working with incarcerated youth, women, and men uh, in California state prisons. Can you share uh, with the audience how you were able to rehabilitate uh, them through your Insight Garden program, please? Oh, sure. Um, well, when you talk about dealing with incarceration, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what it really it does to a, a human being, um, and I've seen it firsthand, I ain't going to, into these state prisons here, um, it's like a complete removal of anything humane or natural. So that's the first thing. When you, come, when you go into a prison, um, there's primarily just concrete, there's metal, um, very dehumanizing experiences with guards, with officials that work there. Even for me, the person going in, I have had um, many disagreements with how I was being talked to and treated and had to educate folks that I'm not incarcerated, so therefore I'm free and I will check you because they, they do kind of lose sight that all humans are um, to be treated a certain way. And so there's a, a disconnect that the incarcerated suffer from because their source of self and their spirit and, and connection to earth is not there. And so um, you know, what, I, what I did with the program that um, I was facilitating was I, I was, um, went in to, it's called the Inside Garden Program, and, and I facilitated, it was like an innovative type, it was an evidence-based environmental education curriculum. And we combined it with um, vocational gardening and also landscape training. And so the people in the prisons were able to now connect with themselves, with the community that we formed in our group, and, um, and also the natural world. It was kind of like um, a revolution in itself. I mean, to go into a state prison and put real estate on their land that is actually something from nature was a little bit radical. Um, I, it took a while for them to accept that we would do that there. I mean, it took many years. This program is, uh, I believe, in its 18th year. And um, installing an, a garden in a state prison or any prison uh, was one of those um, no-nos. Like, no, we're not giving them that. To them, it was like a, a reward. And um, But what we eventually won over, you know, a lot of the wardens in some of these state prisons um, they saw it also as rehabilitation because who wants to be um, in a prison situation if you're a, a guard or if you're uh, one of the officials that works there that you, you are, you're not working on rehabilitating a human that's in there. It's, it's kind of counterproductive because many of them are coming out. And what they realize is that while they're in there, they did need to, to have some hope. Um, so that they didn't create and reoffend inside. Um, they were giving them these opportunities for programs. But this garden program was very different. Um, we worked on the inner and outer garden approach, um, which helped to kind of like transform their lives. Um, it also was proven to end ongoing cycles of incarceration because we followed um, many of our participants when they got out what they were doing in, in, the, in the real world afterwards as a result of the program. And um, we had a less than 5% recidivism rate uh, for, for those to reoffend and come back in because they've, they've developed a connection from within and realized that they, have, they are the solution for a lot of the problems of the world and they just had to reconnect to earth. 
and to how they could how they can give back in some way. Many of them went on to do green jobs and um, are still working. Um, many of them are actually working for themselves uh, as entrepreneurs in the green industry. Um, four areas that we we touched on when we did go in there. It was a two-hour environmental educational like session every time we went in. Um, one was definitely touching on environmental education, um, where we were deepening a lot of the commitment to stewardship and um, focusing on ecological principles like soil, food systems, um, even consumer, consumer systems, um, and then climate change. We talked a lot about that. And then sustain, sustainability landscaping was um, kind of my area where I, I kind of was able to really get deeper in gardening training. Um, once we installed the gardens with them, and, they, and the, matter of fact, these um, the participants were involved from stage one, from drawing to conception to understanding what type of garden that we were going to install together there. And they, they were also involved in, in actually installing, planting the plants. We gave them tools. We gave them um, uh, lessons in irrigation. We brought experts from the outside in. So they got actual real training on how to put together a real garden, um, as, as well as soil, soil building trainings and, and such. And then we then now worked on the inner garden. After we did that, um, we took a step back. And so we, we kind of saw how, how it was parallel to our lives, how tending to the earth, tending to living creatures, living, bringing in pollinators. Like how does that translate into our inner garden and promoting behavioral changes? And because the garden was such a great teacher, and nature is always your best teacher, um, they began to see that when they cultivated and they pruned out things that were bad and things that were not profitable or, or not um, uh, helpful in their in their lives, that things other things would come in of value. And just them seeing hummingbirds come in and all kinds of like insects and praying mantis. I mean, out of nowhere, you know, in a prison to see nature come to that particular site was like, okay, I can attract in myself, you know, positive things if I cultivate my, my inner garden as well. And so they, they got to see firsthand how that happens in nature as well as we talked a lot about, you know, ecotherapy approaches. And um, we did a lot of development in the communication because a lot of times uh, it was very difficult for many of them to relate to different people in the group. But because the garden was such a diverse place and you needed everyone's participation, they learned to, to, to deal with gang, you know, different gangs that were in our group, had to put the gang stuff down because you know we're, we're dealing with a garden here. That, that doesn't apply. And so many times we, we created new relationships in our group and then it translated outside onto, into the yard so that they learned how to get along with each other um, and, and kind of change the culture in the prison. Um, we also helped them with leadership in their uh, community building skills. And lastly, what we did with the program, when they were re-entering back into society, because many of them were getting out, um, we helped them build their career preparation and helped them plan for their re-entry into society. And I even arranged gate pickups with some of the participants to be the first face that they would see and then help them get put back into whether it was their home with their families or with a halfway house or, you know, and then help follow up with them in their journey and into reentry. So it was a, it was a 48 week program. Um, it, it was very intensive, but um, I think it was very helpful to take away the stigma of 
being incarcerated and how do I, how do I put myself back into a society using a garden theme, using earth and using my connection, our connection with each other. So I don't know. Um, I think that's all <laughs> I have to say about that. Wow. Um, we're going to, we're going to talk more about this topic, um, privately because I, I know someone that's just about to get released. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I definitely want to have this discussion in further detail. Thank you so much, man. That, that was, that's absolutely amazing. Wow. Thank you. I ask these questions, I got to be prepared for the answers. <laughs> wow. Um, wow, that was awesome. Jael, can you please tell us about the Eat Well to Live Well workshops that you established at South Carolina State University and how you were able to change the lifestyles of the people on campus? Okay, yeah, awesome. Thank you for that question. Uh, yeah, so uh, the start of the workshops actually began uh, like a few weeks after I had transitioned out of eating, um, out of eating meat, which was the following year in 2017. And so um, establishing those workshops that, you know, the, the student organization was, uh, was hosting um, the reason why, one of the reasons why they were so successful was really because of the relationships, uh, with the admin that we were able to establish. And so I, I had a really good relationship with the, uh, uh, with the faculty and staff, like for our calf. And so, um, talking to like, you know, the, the headband over the calf, um, he introduced me to a nutritionist from Sodexo. And, um, and so we've had her come in on like three different occasions, you know, to do like a joint presentation and, um, also like during the presentation, you know, uh, feeding the, um, you know, participants. And so on the three different occasions, we had it set up for, you know, students and also for, uh, for faculty, what the conveniency for students and faculty and staff. And so I think the biggest highlight here, oh, and then I'll mention one other thing, uh, yeah, another reason why I would it was pretty successful was just also, you know, engaging our people directly. You know, um, one thing that that's most popular and that we get caught up in, caught up in is like, you know, promoting on, online, but, you know, not taking the time to walk up to somebody with a flyer and engage them. And so, you know, the thing about health and uh, is that, you know, it's something that everybody aspires to have or improve or to preserve. So, um, it definitely wasn't hard. I think uh, the biggest highlight, like I said, was um, what they call, I think, I think they call building rapport and uh, interpersonal relationships. <clears throat> and then, you know, the rest just uh, spreading by word of mouth. And so uh, to the last part of your question about how did that evolve to, you know, whole lifestyle changes on campus? Well, it actually started prior to that, you know, we had got going a, uh, a recycling program on campus. And so, you know, getting students just being a little bit more self-aware and mindful of, of their environment um, and, you know, taking taking care of it and then uh, and then having like competitions between the dorms. And then also something that was never instituted was campus cleanups after the football games. You know, our stadium is, is, in, is in the uh, is in the uh, on the main campus, and so it, it even got to the point where 
we didn't even have to host those types of events because now it's integrated in, into the culture. So now like younger classes are doing that, um, you know, hosting those things, you know, on their own so that, you know, we could, I guess, you know, go to uh, larger things. And so um, the point of how we were able to, you know, evolve, uh, you know, the, the lifestyle, um, you know, on campus was just basically, you know, being consistent and having, you know, it only takes a few good men and, and women, uh, you know, not many who can, you know, work on um, an idea, a plan, and, you know, to bring it into reality. It only takes a few people, you know, to and um, to build momentum and then to also inspire others, you know, and, and so... Um, I think that that was a huge reason. Oh, and then the last thing I mentioned here is that, you know, it's kind of a, uh, you know, being on a campus versus being just like solely in a community is two different experiences. And so the benefit to, um, you know, being on a campus or working with a college or university is that everybody's already subscribed to, uh, to like this one idea which is like, say, the university. And, you know, everybody's already on, the, on one page. So when it comes to, you know, engaging your community, I think our, um, some of our best approaches are to, like, meet where our people are grouped at. So definitely, like, you know, going to the churches um, and, like, the sister did, you know, reaching uh, our people who are incarcerated. And so, um, but otherwise, it's, it's definitely pretty difficult to try and just, like, you know, to do something for the community without being connected to, like, a certain group, you know, that, um, or certain groups within the community. Thank you for sharing, uh, Gile. That's, that's an amazing story. I really appreciate the work that both of you are actively doing in your community. I mean, it's, we need more of it. I appreciate it. All right. Moving along. Yes, I know my wife is tuning in. She will love this question. Um, my wife and I have been on a mission lately to find seeded watermelons. But every store that we call has said that they are either out of season or they are no longer planning to carry them. However, seedless watermelons, as Jael went into detail about earlier, are available in abundance on farms who emphasize them. Go figure. Now, John, we've seen the pictures of the huge seeded watermelons that you have uh, displayed on your Instagram page. Can you please tell the audience how long they take to harvest and dispel the myth that seeded, water, seeded watermelons are seasonal? Oh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So the first thing is um, that watermelon that I had on my um on my on my story on my instagram page was actually not a watermelon that i grew myself that was a watermelon that was uh that was brought from florida there was a guy an, an elder like a, an old white guy him and his wife they had drove all the way up from florida uh with like this huge farmer truck uh, load full of, of watermelons um but yeah so my experience in, in growing watermelons, though, has, has been limited in some degree. Um, I, I've been, you know, so for the past couple of years, I've been uh, 
renting. And so a lot of my, my growing, my personal growing has been out of pots. And, and so last year I actually had, uh, I actually had a, uh, a good turnout with my first time growing out of pots and growing uh, a moon and stars watermelon and then also growing a um, white wonder watermelon whose whose flesh is white but with, uh, with, with seeds right so and, and both of those are, are heirlooms and uh, the, the other question that you mentioned was about you know how can we uh, well, the first thing is like the accessibility of seeded watermelon and, you know, the season that they're available. And so the latest time that I've ever been able to have a seeded watermelon was into like the set, the first or second week of September, uh, which is last year. I caught, you know, here in, on South Carolina and, and I know in Georgia, you know, a lot of people tend to pull up on the side of the road, you know, with, with, with watermelons and, um, and so, like I said, the last watermelon that I was, or the latest in the in-season watermelon that I was able to attain was on, yeah, the second week of September. So one of my aspirations, though, was to, you know, as things are developing, um, was like uh, get attaining capital to start projects on the ground. Uh, one of the aspirations was to... Um, experiment with growing seeded watermelon in a tropical greenhouse, right? Because, you know, at least to my, my knowledge, my limited knowledge, you know, I haven't, or in experience, I haven't come across um, anybody or uh, commercially um, the availability of a seeded watermelon, you know, out of season. And so, um, you know, one thing that I was surprised about, you know, a couple of years ago was when I was able to get a watermelon in the month of, what was it, March or April um, at the local flea market and um, at a Hispanic fruit stand. And so I was like, I asked the question, excuse me, I asked the question. I was like, uh, you know, because I always come in, I'm like, is it seeded? And he's like, yeah, amigo, seeded, seeded watermelon. And so I, I was like, where, how, how do we have watermelons this soon? He was like, oh, from Florida, right? And so, of course, Florida has an extended growing season. You know, it's 80, 80 degrees in, you know, February, March. And so, um, you know, being able to get seeded water, watermelon, um, you know, early on in, in the season, definitely well, is, is limited to being, to coming from Florida. And so then the other reality about that is that, you know, Florida watermelons don't make it all the way up north. So, you know, the, the, the growing season for seeded watermelon is really short, especially if you live up north, right, which is all the more reason among several as to why y'all should be considering relocating south because, uh, you know, to, to trop more tropical weather so that you can have access to more tropical foods and then also have access to more sun. But um, that's a whole nother tangent there. But yes, yeah, so I, I hope that I answered the question about seeded watermelon out of season. Oh, and absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to have a question for you regarding hydroponics, but I'm going to save that for later. But we, got, okay. we still, still have uh, some more pressing uh, questions that we need to get answered. But that was a great answer. I appreciate you, Jaya.
Ty Lee, can you please explain why the U.S. government would try to keep our people from getting our hands on seeded watermelons in, in the wintertime? Now, we did hear what, what Jaiho had to say as far as um, commercial farms and, and, and uh, supermarkets having them in certain seasons, but we know with um, there are other ways that, that watermelons could be grown. Like, why do you think, well, just not just watermelon, but just any uh, vegetables, period, because you see the, the food shortage going on right now and uh, having a difficult time finding seeded of anything, much less um, just watermelon. Could you touch on that, please? Well, I just want to mention, I live out here in California for now, and in the, what, five, six years I've been out here, and this is supposed to be the agricultural capital. You know, we supply the world. <laughs> like this, when I drove cross country to get here, um, all my plants were confiscated uh, on the back of my trailer. And, and I was very like, very upset about that. But um, I did not know that there was such a big um, uh, security around bringing anything in and having any soil from another state. So California is really protected um, and they're very protective of their crops. They don't want any insects, especially I was coming from Georgia at the time. So of course, you know, they saw my license plate and they inspected my vehicle to the T. They took house plants, everything from me. So when I got here, I just knew that, you know, I'm gonna have the oasis of fruits and vegetables because this is supposed to be the world's, you know, like we supply the country and the world. Well, that's not really so because their crops are really slated for um, export. They're not slated for the, the Californians here to actually partake of. Um, and it was extremely disappointing for me to know that I have to buy imported imported vegetables here unless and fruit, unless I'm buying it from a local um, grower or, or farmer. Um, their commercially grown fruits and vegetables are not for the, the residents here. And then we pay much more money for our vegetables and fruits here in California, which led me to grow my own because I was very upset about the, um, just the, the disregard for, um, you know, if you're gonna grow something here, you're not allowing the actual residents to benefit from the, um, you know, the low cost it, sh it should have cost us to buy it. Um, tomatoes are extremely high out here to purchase. Um, watermelons, forget it. We can't, I have not yet found a seeded watermelon in California. Um, I have plenty of seedless. Um, you have to go to a market, a farmer's market to find that. Um, and when you find it, it's like gold. So I haven't found, you know, this is a, again, wine country. Can't find uh, grapes with seeds in it. Nowhere. I mean, it's, uh, it's really kind of like, I think I just found one, some Concord grapes when I came back from the summit um, that had seeds. Um, but that's the end of the season here, but not California grapes. And it's very interesting, like, you know, they're not, they're not selling any fruit with seeds. That's the grapes or the watermelons here. And um, I've, I grew my own watermelons last year. Um, and uh, the brother mentioned the, the moon and stars, and that's one of the heirloom ones I grew last year specifically because I couldn't find any watermelon out here. And, um, and it's a shame, but it's, it's all, you know, part of the plan. You know, they, they're not going to give you the, they want you to keep buying the product that they grow without seeds. 
if they give you the product with seeds, then, well, you know, you have the capacity of growing it yourself and you won't need to buy from them. So it's all marketing. It's all, you know, control. And, it's and, and you know, as far as the GMO stuff goes, I mean, it's not healthy to – I don't consume fruit. I try not to, you know, buy any fruit that or vegetables that are GMO if I have knowledge of it. Um, again, you know, when we don't know what they do in the grocery store with the labels, and that's another topic. Um, I've heard people um, who worked in the grocery store um, talk about some horror stories about what they do in the back with the produce and the stickers that start with nine, which are supposed to be organic, um, what they will do when they have to make sales. And they will put stickers on fruits and vegetables that are not necessarily organic, but sell it as organic. And that's why it's important to grow your own if you can. What? Go to a... Yes, yes. So I, and this was uh, someone who uh, worked at one of the, the, the larger food chains. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also leery about buying stuff at grocery stores and, you know, places um, that claim to have organic produce because you just don't know what they do when they get those shipments. And, and what they will do now is they know that people are, are trying to eat healthier so they can switch labels. They can switch tags. We're just believing and hoping that they're ethical. But for me, the only way for me to, to start to mitigate um, the unknown is to grow my own, grow what I can. I can't grow everything, but I can grow a lot of things that I consume, um, and I try to do that. So, yeah, it is very concerning um, the way that this industry is moving right now because they know people are looking out for their health. And, they're, and I mean, there's some fruit that I'm seeing that looks too perfect to be organic. I'm just like, I know I grow this stuff. I'm like, this is this is too big and it's too perfect. I'm, I, I'm suspect of some of the things that I, I do purchase. But just know that organic is also a, a label that has been, um, it, it, it's, it's something that is not really um, what it used to be. Um, it's been bought by the FDA, so they have, I don't know, I, I remember when I was in school, they said something like 25 to 30 different um, different chemicals that they will allow to, to be under the organic label. So don't think just because it says organic that it's the best for you either. Um, they are still allowed to put certain things that really are not good for us under the organic label. Um, so all more reason for us to start to think about what can I grow and what what I'm what am I able to grow where I live even if it's in a pot even if it's on a, um, a windowsill you know just just saying Tyler you got me over here beside myself me and my wife pretty much only shop at Whole Foods and I'm sitting here <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are just sitting here like Oh man, oh man. Let me. I, I, I gotta gather my bearings right now because I'm like I'm already paranoid when it comes to shopping as it is, and so now okay, get it together. We got a show to do. All right. Before gentrification introduced us to organic retailers such as Whole Foods, Sprouts, Trader Joe's, and Audi, most of our elders grew their own produce in their own gardens they lived in urban areas or on their own farms if they lived in rural areas how do we make this the norm again instead of the exception this is a this question will be uh, for both of you and we'll start with uh with Ty Lee and then we'll go to Jaya okay well um first I, I always tell people and when I'm garden coaching folks that start with one crop 
like don't overwhelm yourself because growing something is um, it takes it takes a little time and experience with and, and successful experience is helpful so I would say you know even if you don't have a lot of space start with just something in a pot that's going to be a, a successful crop like a tomato like um, even a cucumber or a pepper um, because that kind of empowerment, you know, when you see a successful plant growing, you know, then you can add, you can add another crop in the same season. You can, you know, start to maybe get bigger pots, or maybe you might want to throw something in the ground when you feel a little more confident. But it's not to start to do, do a whole entire garden at first, because that's where people get a little overwhelmed, and then they, they, they lose sight of, you know, caring for each plant, because there's a different um, there's different plant need, that needs that these plants have and different watering conditions. And so you, you really want to start to study what you're trying to grow for yourself. And it's, it's like having a baby or having a child. You know, you do have to um, pay attention to it each day, um, see that it has its needs met. Um, uh, and I, again, I would start with one or two crops somewhere where you can monitor it. And then you can always start adding. But we are we have lost that that knowledge and we've lost that connection to growing something from a seed to a full-fledged you know harvestable plant and so it's like we still have to 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 be mindful of that and take baby steps um if you have land or if you have a house and you have a yard even better you know you can start with a raised bed situation um and you can create maybe a small garden box where you can control the soil um, and add the things that you need to add because otherwise I would recommend you do a soil test if you're going to grow something in ground because you just don't know what was there before and if, if it's a house that you know, has construction around it, if it's a new build, a lot of times we don't know what the soil quality is. So um, the easiest thing is to do a raised bed or, or growing pots so where you can add certain soils and certain amendments so you can know what you're actually growing, um, you know, what's in the soil that you're growing. Thank you for that, sis. Appreciate that. Jael. Uh, yeah, so I definitely would say that, you know, one of the ways that we should um, imagine before, you know, taking this action as to how do we get back to basically feeding our own community and, um, you know, and, and removing this dependability on uh, outsourced produce, essentially. Uh, so to me, it looks like, you know, holding space for our community, um, you know, holding space and activities for the youth and, um, you know, starting programs that get the youth involved with, say, like perhaps a community garden. Um, and then, you know, from that point, <clears throat> you know, we, we can really engage our community um, there's a quote that says, if you want to change the people, you have to change their literature. And so we know that, you know, in the public school systems, they're not being taught about their black biology, right? Or, um, you know, food that's in alignment with their God-given nature. Why? Because that goes against the status quo, to say the least. Uh, and so I, I think, like I said, how I envision it is, um, you know, is, is doing things like what Sister Tylee has done with showing up and holding space for, you know, incarcerated um, or, or people who are incarcerated, 
you know, and uh, because the thing is, is like, you know, this is a, to, to eat cleaner, to eat healthier and to eat with more, you know, intention and awareness. It is, in fact, a whole lifestyle change. And um, and so, you know, one thing that gets overshadowed is like how uncomfortable that actually is. And especially if you're doing it by yourself. And so, um, you know, that, that lifestyle change has to be cultivated you know, with different areas of reinforcement and, and support. And so <clears throat> I think especially right now, you know, we we are we should be very adamant about, you know, getting our boots on the ground and um, you know, going to our local churches, black churches, um, you know, because those are those were the pillars for the black community for, for so long and to some degree they still are, you know, as far as like being able to to reach our people. Um, and like I said, just offering to initiate, you know, a community garden, um, project and inviting people in to be involved. And, you know, so starting from there, um, and then also, you know, if you have, if there are like large scale, uh, farmers in the area, you know, bringing them, um, to the table as well. And, you know, being able to have, this chance to inform them on better, um, more sustainable methods of farming, right? And so, you know, it's specifically with just using carbon-based fertilizers, you know, showing them the, the statistics and reports in comparison. And so I think that once we get, you know, that, that foundation and that, that momentum going, uh, then it becomes a whole lot more realistic for us to, ha- you know, talk about how we can have our, begin to have our own um, uh, indigenous food markets or, you know, uh, yeah, let me say, yeah, Aboriginal or indigenous food markets where we're serving, we're serving, um, food that we've grown, grown to, um, our, you know, in our specific way of, of, of growing with the soil. And then also, you know, looping in, uh, those in the area who are, who are like chefs, vegan or, um, uh, carbon-based chefs, because, you know, one of the biggest challenges to somebody, transitioning to a healthy healthier lifestyle is like not knowing how to prepare a healthy meal so it has to be you know the approach to getting back to that point where we're feeding our community as they say would say is you know it has to be holistic like it can't just be one thing but you know we really have to um we we really have to uh set up you know our um pillars to uh, re-engage, to have our community re-engage themselves. And I'll, I'll mention it with this, uh, this theory. So, um, that I think would also really annotate this very well. So uh, maybe you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, maybe you're not, but I have a, a theory that's very similar and it basically describes like our current situation now, um, psychologically, uh, economically, and so it basically starts at the bottom you have, or the top you have nature. I'm sorry, you have, um, you have, oh, I'm slipping right here. Okay, so here it is. So at the bottom you have um, psychology and you have uh, nature, right? So our nature, because we say are the same nature, we, we tend to say are the same um, behavior, right? And so, you know, people say, Oh, crabs in a barrel, but they never talk about why the heck crabs are in a barrel, you know, the environment that they're in. And so, um, you know, so we're in this, um, artificial 
you know, environment that uh, perverts our very own perception of ourselves and how we how we view one another outwardly. And so now with this, you know, perverted view inwardly and outwardly, um, which translates to our, you know, our psychology, that then begins to shift how we uh, circulate the energy between ourselves. So, you know, they say the dollar circulates in, in the white community, you know, 47 times, 30 times in other communities, but for ours is like 1.7 seconds. And so um, it's, so what I'm getting at is like, you know, once we take control of our environment and, you know, get back to um, controlling the land and how we can feed our people, we could then begin to redirect, you know, how we think about ourselves and how we think about, um, you know, inwardly and outwardly. And then, you know, we can now talk about, you know, establishing these circular, circular economies where we are interdependent on one another, you know, growing certain foods and, um, you know, just certain uh, stable things that, you know, needed to not be dependent on the government or people outside of our community. Thank you for that, brother. And uh, just so uh, everyone knows, we will be discussing uh, tribal economics in the two-part series on October the 13th as well as October the 20th. So definitely stay tuned for that. Um, I just want to address Dr. Pallant. I just saw you come aboard, and I absolutely want to make sure that you uh, have an opportunity to share your expertise. We just have to get through uh, some of these questions, but I absolutely am happy that you are here, and I want to make sure that uh, we give you the mic here shortly. Uh, Moving along, the next question that I have, uh, actually, to be quite honest, uh, (laughs) Jael, you you pretty much already answered that, which is your previous response, so I think we can uh, go ahead and move on to the next one. by now, we've heard about the food supply being in a state of peril. We've also learned that wealthy but wicked technocrats like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are buying up farmland all over the U.S. to not only grow their GMO crops like Monsanto corn and soybeans, but to also play a game of keep away from prospective black farmers. Knowing this information, be harvesting as we approach perhaps the darkest winter in modern history. I'm going to start with Tylee. Thank you. Um, well, I, I do a lot of canning. Um, and this is a good time of the year to start thinking about what you want to preserve for the winter. And this winter is seeming to be a, a, a even more um, ominous type of a winter. Um, a lot of the things that I would I would say I would focus on in my canning from personally me um, are things that I I consume and, and what we are um, educated to consume that are healthy for us in our indigenous diet. Um, you can preserve squash uh, and you can preserve um, peppers. You can preserve things like okra and asparagus and these are and canning is just a a safer method for food preservation if you've not done it um, you use glass jars Um, it's about heating up the water um, to a a certain temperature so that you're actually killing off microorganisms that can cause food spoilage 
And so in doing this method of um, heating up vegetables and, and also fruit, um, and I will mention some of the fruit that I would focus on while we still have it here um, to harvest, uh, to, to purchase it and also create um, canning for it would be apples, you know, or cherries, uh, all the berries, um, there's raspberries, blackberries, um, you know, different, different other berries that you can find in your region, um, figs, grapefruits, grapes, oranges, um, oranges um, get a little bitter and you need to kind of preserve it with grapefruit, um, that, that I've learned that. Um, peaches, pears, pineapples, mangoes, plums, those are the things that for me I enjoy in the summer and they're not going to be here in the winter, at least not in season. And we don't even know what, what's going on in the world right now if we can get some of these uh, imported, um, depending on what they shut down. And so I'm just, for me, um, because I enjoy those things, I will seek those out now and start to preserve them. And when, it, when you're preserving as a rule, um, and you know, you can also get a book or you can go online to look into this, but um, you usually will need two to three pounds of each of, of a crop, of a raw product to do one quart jar. So it can be a little pricey if you're buying it um, for a family, but when you think about what you can get out of season, it's not gonna be a, a lot of um, choices. And at least you know you've pre preserved it, you, you've bought it, you've inspected it, um, even if you've grown it, you know, even better, um, you know that the food is quality and you can always reach into that cabinet and get something when food is not available. Um, another way of also preserving food is doing through pressure canning, which um, there are certain things that you, that you can't do with the hot water method that you have to do in pressure because there's not a lot of acid in the food, in the vegetable, the fruit, um, mainly with soups and vegetables. And if you're gonna do anything with um, soups with containing vegetables and meat, and um, in, in our indigenous, you know, food science, we we do learn that bison is one of the land meats that we can consume. Um, and so if you're gonna use that in, in any of your soups, you do have to do a pressure canning method for that. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that, that those would be the, the things that I would think about canning uh, while you still have it in, in, in the stores. Thank you for that, J uh, excuse me, Tylee, Jael. So to be harvesting means that, you know, you have something in the ground now or you're growing, uh, growing now and uh, maybe our audience is growing food, maybe not. So I would actually like to speak to um, what exactly could we be growing to harvest, you know, at this time, um, especially in, in the face of, you know, what was potentially to happen on on the uh, worst end of things. So um, uh, for, well, before I mention that, I, I would also mention that, you know, we should be attaining um, grains in bulk. You know, so one thing that I've, I've done for the past two years is like I buy uh, quinoa in bulk um, and then I also buy fonio in bulk. Right. And so, you know, I buy it one time and, and it, it will last me for like almost almost a year or sometimes a little over a year, um, you know, buying it at like 10 pounds or 25 pounds. 
And so, you know, also uh, a little bit here and there, we should be, you know, getting um, stocking up on, on canned goods, you know, and the, the only types of canned goods that um, that we learn are the best to, to consume from indigenous food science are uh, garbanzo beans and white navy beans. And specifically, you know, after you've soaked them uh, in lime and sea salt. And so when it comes to, so now that you have, you know, you have your, um, you have your grains on deck and you have some, some canned food on deck. Um, so now you should be attaining uh, seeds, you know, to grow your greens throughout the winter. And so uh, some leafy greens that um, survive the frost that you can begin planting now are uh, chard, turnip greens, um, and of course you have, you know, collards and, and, and kale. But, um, you know, as we learn in indigenous food science, even some of those popular and traditional uh, staple greens are not the healthiest you know, for people who have, especially who have certain gastrointestinal issues or, or issues with their thyroids, you know, so, you know, foods like collards and kale can, um, you know, cause those, those people, you know, inflammation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I would, I would encourage you all to, um, like I said, for this upcoming winter, you know, to, to stock up on some grains like quinoa, fonio, amaranth um oh wild rice um wild rice you know the um and not the white rice or yellow because all of those are synthetic and uh, let me just leave it at that um you know start attaining some some uh canned goods and to you know attain seeds heirloom seeds you know to grow some leafy greens um yeah so i'll leave it at that Oh, you know, and last thing about that, I actually wanted to share a resource with you all that I've hyperlinked to my Instagram. So basically, it's a, a compilation of like all of these things I just told you to go find, like put on an Excel spreadsheet, and it just uh, so it has the prices of them, and then it's linked to the page. So if you want to, you know, go ahead and, and uh, purchase those things for you and your family, um, whether it be seeds or you know the um, the grains at, at, at the bulk size just go to my instagram uh click on the link tree and i titled it uh tribal agriculture uh sovereign creed podcast and so there's a document on there that um will, will that you'll be able to access those things look at you yeah I want to that's, say that's awesome. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sitting here. I just clicked on it, too, and I am saving it right now. Thank you for that, God. Save it to my... Uh, no no yeah, problem. Absolutely. My wife My wife just texted me, wow, this dude is impressive. Yes, he is, baby. Yes, he is. I want to uh, add one thing, um, if I can, to um, what um, the brother was saying as far as what you can grow. There's a couple of other things that um, you can still grow in the coolness of the of the temperature of the of fall and winter is um, arugula um, and some lettuces. You can also do um, celery, parsley, and you can begin sowing some seeds of onion because they take a long time 
to become an onion. But um, those are some things you can also just just throw it throw in a in a pot or throw in the ground and cultivate when it's cool temperatures. You know what? I, as I that that previous question that I skipped over after reading it a few times, I think I'm going to ask the question. Uh, with everything in this country that's designed to weaken our immune system from electromagnetic fields and the environment, chemtrails, GMOs, overindulgence on nitrogen-based foods, mass marketing of eugenicist ideologies on the mainstream and social media, how vital is it that we return to the way of life that our ancestors practiced prior to colonization? And even more importantly, how do we do it? I leave. Okay, um, that's a big question. I mean, it depends on where you're living, um, and also, it's it's really difficult. If you're living in a city, a metropolis, or someplace like that, um, it's a, it's going to be a little different. Um, I'm I'm out here in California, and I have access to some land, so it would look a little differently for me to. Um, and I've already, you know, I rent some land. Um, I also um, buddy up with. Uh, few people who have land out here that they have too much land and I just use sections to grow my herbs and different things. So um, being, being resourceful and kind of just sitting down and saying, you know, let me plan this out. Like if I needed to, to get myself um, a little more self-sufficient in my family, who do I know that may have some land in my area or have a space or how can I network with other people and see what they can grow versus what I can grow? Um, if I even have a sunny window, um, maybe you have a balcony. Um, it, it just—it's going to take a little bit of thinking and planning um, based on your situation. But um, I would say uh, if you do have some land, uh, definitely utilize it for um, some area of, of a growing, growing something for your um, family to consume. It also depends um, on your, fi- you know, on your financial abilities as well. Um, but preparing, getting soil ready for this is, is key because, you know, we talked about pr- proper soil nutrition and what, what to add. That is something you, you, you know, finding resources. I don't know, Jael, if you have um, resources of where to get um, the volcanic, volcanic ash and um, azomite and all that. Um, you know, that, that's something that it's not easy. Do you have a source for that? Oh, yeah. So I also, I, yeah, I definitely um, linked that one in on that same document as well. Because that. Uh, awesome. Mm-hmm. But, Great. Oh, but did you did you finish your. Um, your yeah, I think I'm, I'm good on that. I mean, it's 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 um, it just depends on on the, the you know, the, the ability you have to have a certain amount of space to grow these things. So um, but I'll let you take over, Jail. If you have a question, I answer for it. Oh yeah. So um, the question again. The question was, how do we get back to like the way of our ancestors, uh, or why? And so the first thing that I would answer to that is that um, you know us getting back to our our, our ways and our God given nature is fulfilling Indigenous prophecy. You know, um, and one of mm. the texts that um, the Chief Ali put together uh, this book called Star Prophecy, he talks about um, uh, several different perspectives describing 
the return of a star in our system. And so one perspective is that the uh, this West African uh, tribe called the Dogon, they prophesied, you know, the return of this star, you know, thousands of years ago. And um, they're this primitive tribe that was able to look into, you know, uh, annotate galaxies and other planets, you know, without t- technology. And then he also in the book, Star Prophecy, um, he, he discusses how even in the Quran, there's, um, you know, the return of a, of a star and then even highlighting even in the Bible, you know, there's the return of a star. And so um, the correlation as it relates to prophecy being filled. Oh, and then the last um, relative um, native tribe that is discussed about the return of the star is this uh, West Western uh, native tribe called the Hopi. And, um, you know, upon the return of the star, how it would restore the Earth's magnetic field, right? Because right now it's at about 7.8 cycles per second, known as the Schumann resonance. And that's on the level of, uh, I think it's, um, so you have beta, alpha, and delta, which is uh, sleeping, right? And so um, there's just a whole, I mean, this is a whole, well, maybe I I can take the time to go through it because it's not that long. So the the part about us growing our foods and and getting back to the ways of our ancestors and fulfilling prophecy is very specific to us restoring the magnetic field of the soil by, you know, re-fertilizing our soil with carbon-based fertilizers like that is going to strengthen, um, you know, the magnetic field of the earth from the inside out. And that is also going to basically bring in or allegedly, let me say, uh, to bring in, you know, the activation of the star, you know, with us becoming more <clears throat> self-aware of our ways and, um, you know, who we are as a people and our identity, knowledge of self. And then, you know, uh, retuning back into the um, vibration and the magnetic field of the earth. And so, um, you know, as I think I mentioned this earlier on, you know, when we do these things, we're improving the soil, we're improving the, the line and generation of plants, um, that we're consuming. Like we're also doing that in our own genetics. And so this also contributes to raising the awareness of the planet. And so it's, it's a whole, um, beautiful thing to become to come into awareness of so now now you really understand and comprehend how uh in, intentional um you know of, of what you're doing and as it relates to like an even bigger picture you know that's been prophesied to happen and so you know you guys being tapped in today you know isn't a coincidence and you know for those of you who are already growing or are going to be growing even more you know you're, you're part of the solution and not the problem here just want to let you know. Thank you for that, Jael. Um, moving along, we heard during the montage uh, in the opening uh, how the Hempstead Act systematically dismantled black farms across the U.S. We also heard from the gentleman in the video regarding how difficult it was to attain, how difficult it is to attain the funding to operate. What advice would you give to them or any current or prospective Aboriginal American farmer? 
on how they can not only secure the necessary capital to develop their farm, but to also remain functional. And also, I'm going to combine that question, and what advice do you have to anyone residing in our community who's interested in homesteading? Starting with you, Tyler. Well, when it comes to homesteading, for me, like I, I'm a city girl, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I didn't understand or know about um, owning land. Um, it only became apparent to me when, as I got older to understand that, you know, having land was power and control and, you know, um, renting was just not, it, it rendered too much of a, um, someone else's you're at someone else's uh whim whenever they wanted to you know tell you to leave their premises and so i started to really understand that owning something was important and with homesteading like i i would say trying to attain land is is very important and if you if you know someone who has land or if you can get together with um other people in your circle to to look for land that's that's a really important start because once you own it you can you know you you can actually start to set up jurisdiction and start to set up um places a place where you can govern yourself and um and no one's going to um tell you what to do in that space when you're trying to create that um as long as you're not you know you're, you're practicing natural law you're not harming anyone um and um i think that Homesteading for me has always been finding finding a place of my own that I can do what I feel is natural for me um, to sustain my health and my family. Um, homesteading also it, it requires work. You know, a lot of us think it, it, it looks glamorous when we see on TV and people just have all these um, you know beautiful farm, beautiful you know um, you know home or you know it, it takes work to do this type of living and we're not too much uh in tune with that because we have de depended a lot on um the system that we're in currently to provide a lot of things for us and um the conveniences i should say of things for us and homesteading is a lot different uh you are going to be doing a lot more of the um the work there uh, and educating oneself on things that you need to know you know skill skill building in learning how to use tools, you know, learning um, how to how to be your own pharmacist too, because you're gonna you're gonna need to learn how to take care of yourself medicinally. And I grow a lot of herbs, and you know, learning about how to use the land to heal yourself and food as medicine um, is an important thing. So, uh, attaining the books that you need um, for the education, because everything is not can't really be found on the internet. That is always reputable you know and and i still i still believe in books and i have a lot of books uh, especially on this topic and um i just really think that and especially if, if the internet goes down you know you, you also need just tangible things um so that you can look up and understand what you're going to get into with when you're homesteading uh it, but it does require planning it does require you um doing some work um networking finding people who have common interests uh, and, um, and have people who have different interests so that you can all benefit from, you know, the learning of, of different um, industries. If you have someone who's a, a doctor or studying medicine, that's great. You have someone who's studying law, that's wonderful. 
you know, there's education, you know, homeschooling. So you're, you're trying to find these different people as well so that you can come together on, on a piece of land or, or even in a community so you can build. I don't know if that, that answered your question, but um, that's how I would kind of think about homesteading in kind of a broader sense. Oh, no, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Jaya, I will take your perspective as well. Oh, uh, yeah. So um, my knowledge with homesteading is, is limited, uh, but I do, I am aware of, um, I guess, certain initial processes with um, going about declaring your land as a, as a homestead. Um, and basically, like, just basically it's like... Uh, you communicating um, with a, a law firm legal document that has been notarized, you know, identifying the address of your property that, that's going to be a, a homestead and, uh, you know, within the county and the state and just making basically a declaration of, of, of your homestead. I know that's like one of the beginning uh, processes, but um, I would, my my perspective on you know how can we get uh advice on you know or i'm sorry uh, advice on towards homesteading is that you know I, I would advise people to do research and become familiar in the areas of estate planning you know to become aware of property law um and common law as it relates to private ownership you know within trust law and so uh the reason why i advocate this is because you know this is the foundation of what you want your land to be secured on and so um only recently like within the past six months you know i've been um learning from a mentor who's done you know estate planning for like over 30 years for like um let's just say some extremely wealthy people and you know I, i've come to learn uh you know how essential it is for us to set up um like I said, our estate so that, you know, we can properly, um, you know, attain this land and allow it to go down the line of our, of our, uh, of our family, you know, for intergenerational wealth and, and development. And so uh, I know that's like part of the reason why, you know, over the years, uh, indigenous melanated uh, Americans uh, or the, the true Americans, the, the original 1828 Webster's Dictionary definition of American. Um, us, why we've lost so much land is because, you know, we didn't know the law. And so there's this Latin uh, expression that says, jurist um, uh, non excused. I'm sorry, it translates to ignorance of the law is no excuse from it. Ignorantia, jurist non excused. And so it's like, although we're oblivious to these laws and, you know, trust law and, you know, how to operate in the private, you know, that doesn't mean that we excuse from, you know, losing our land. And so that's definitely a, a point of education that we really need to seek out um, aggressively, you know, for our community so that we can, like I said, can continue to keep our land and assets for uh, not only intergenerational wealth, but for intergenerational development, right? Absolutely. And uh, just so for the audience, if you're not familiar, that definition uh, is from the 1828 uh, Noah Webster's Dictionary. And uh, if you've seen our 
line of t-shirts, the Aborigine, we have that definition on there. So I appreciate that, Jael, absolutely. Uh, we have about 22 minutes, and so that we um, allow everyone to ask their questions uh, during the q and I'm gonna uh, reduce some of these questions, and I'm just gonna get down to these, to these particular two that I feel like I, I really need to get uh, asked, uh, answered, excuse me. With the recent phenomenon of new vegans, vegetarians, and advocates for Dr. Sevy's alkaline diet, what advice would you give to people who have transitioned to this new lifestyle and how they can maintain it for the long haul? We could uh, briefly answer that uh, so we can get some of these other questions answered. Uh, first, Ty Lee and Jaya, if you could just give me a brief uh, response to that. Um, I think when you're, you're transitioning, um, it's not to try and do everything, um, not to try and eat a certain way all at once. It's, it's really about um, gradually um, trying to eliminate things, uh, starting with things that are the worst in your diet uh, and, and replacing it with something that's healthy. But, but mainly learning why something is not good for you, I think. For me, I talk about myself. Once I learned why certain things were not good, uh, it really helped me to decide not to eat that thing when when the the urge came up to have it because when you're finding out what it does to the system and does, does to the organs then you kind of have a more of a, a responsibility to say you know do i love myself enough to Come to on. not eat that that thing because um i think when we're practicing self-love in this um way of eating it it, it it can help us to um, stick to the things that our bodies um, will benefit from um, and that we will also stay healthier through loving ourselves. So um, I, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that because it's really difficult for me to do something against myself if I love myself. So I think looking at that type of the, the bad foods as not loving myself helped me to say no to them and, and gravitate to the things that I was taught that really do cause my, my body to, to do well and excel. Um, so I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Great answer, uh, Jael. Yeah, so I would say uh, something that encouraged me in my transition was um, following people who are in this lifestyle that I'm trying to get to or be about. And, um, you know, so if you're on social media a lot, you know, scrolling through, um, uh, unfollow pages that aren't contributing towards your development, you know, and, and follow pages that, you know, are, will steadily remind you uh, of the direction that you're going in, <clears throat> you know, pages that post, um, you know, uh, vegan meals and, and things of that nature, to, you know, to keep you inspired with, you know, trying out new dishes and things of that nature. Also, you know, following people, because the other thing about, you know, this lifestyle is, you know, you think it's just, or people think it, people think that it's just about eating. But the other, the other part is about being active, you know, and, and becoming more active. Um, and so, you know, following social media pages of, of people who are just active and, you know, doing body weight training or, or calisthenics or, you know, things of that nature. Um, and then, you know, take, after you've, you know, made this transition, like the sister said, you know, continue to learn why that was a huge biggest thing that that I think really reinforced my uh decision to you know con consume or not and um and then you know eventually finding your, your your tribe you know as they say your vibe attracts your tribe so 
you know, coming into community, uh, you know, people, you know, like-minded individuals who are also trying to, or who have similar goals, you know, as it relates to improving their diet. Thank you for that. And for our final question, and before we uh, open up the floor, um, obviously the two of you have a wealth of knowledge regarding anything relating to agriculture, indigenous food science, just health in general. Can you share with the audience what's your biggest takeaway from previous projects that you would like to apply on your next one, Tylee? Uh, well, kind of what Jael was saying, you know, finding your tribe, I, I think um, going on my next project, that makes a difference when you're finding like-minded people who you don't have to convince, you know, it's not, it's not just about paying someone um, to do a task. I mean, that, anybody could pay someone to do a task if they have a skill for it. But it's like I want to have the attitude um, it, within that project by everyone that we're all working for the same thing and, we, and we're and um, we in accordance to, you know, the, the project, that we're all building this for the right reasons and for a common goal. And I think when you're doing projects, it's, it's really it's really key to find individuals who are willing to, to do not just the work, but the, there's a whole lifestyle to the work. You know, you, you're living it and you're, you're not just it's not just for a paycheck. It's like it's a lifestyle. So um, for me, my next project is just um, finding those folks who are willing to live live that life. And um, through everything, education, you know, um, just like I said, loving, loving oneself, loving your family, seeing, you know, the future for your for your seeds and just just being um, just being with people who who have that that same type of um, understanding on any project. Thank you for that, Tylee and Jael. Oh, yeah. So uh, biggest takeaway from other projects and uh, applying that to now going forward. Um, yes. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that, you know, it only takes a few people to uh, initiate a movement that essentially can e evolve with so much momentum into uh, creating an elevated experience for others, you know, exposing them to higher education or higher information, you know, and um and so, you know, that's that's the biggest takeaway that I've, you know, from my, my previous experiences that I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, at this point. Because, you know, prior to, you know, uh, the pandemic coming through, <clears throat> I was just beginning my studies in indigenous food science and taking the health course. And so, you know, uh, it really excites me <clears throat> to have this wealth of knowledge to engage our community with. You know, um, so definitely um, would, like I said, emphasize, you know, finding your tribe, like the sister said, uh, you know, the few people who, who share that same vision, that share that same flame, um, who can keep yours, uh, who can keep yours uh, ignited and, and such. And just starting with them and, you know, hosting little events, you know, for the community um, and for your people. That's all it takes. Thank you for that, Jael. Uh, uh, so we have about uh, 10 more minutes. Uh, I want to make sure that I have give everyone an opportunity who's had their hands raised to come up and speak. And uh, let's go with Monica. Peace, God. Peace, God. Peace, goddesses. 
um, peace gods and goddesses in the room. Uh, yeah, I'll make it very quick. Um, it's good to see you, Sherry. Hi. Um, my question is about the uh, volcanic rock ash that you mentioned and hydroponics. I was a part of a co-op and uh, it kind of dissolved, but I have a tower that I need to pick up uh, this weekend. So I was wondering, is that a fertilizer that I can use within the hydroponic system? Thank you. Yeah, so I think Brother Jay, you and your wife may have some good experience to this. Uh, Y'all do hydroponic gardening, is that correct? That is correct. My wife actually brought her up. She was going to speak. Uh, oh, okay. I'll just respond in just a second. Yeah. A peace family. Uh, peace, Monica. Uh, yeah, so I do have a um, hydroponic uh, garden. We, we do sell tower gardens. And I recently started using the azomite. I know that it comes in different forms. Um, I have particularly the crystallized rock ones that I actually insert into the rock wool. Um, where the seeds sprout from. I do know that people use the powdered form and they, you know, sprinkle it in the water. I have not tried that yet. Um, So I'm still experimenting with the azomite myself. I just maybe started doing that two weeks ago. So I'm just kind of trying to monitor the growth and see what the comparison contrast is from that. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And just to touch on the tower gardens, uh, if you go into my bio and uh, click on, well, not click on, but if you put uh, uh, Shiamaru, that would be a X-I-A-M-A-R-U dot towergarden.com, you'll be able to uh, take a look at the the tower gardens that my wife and I own and sell. And uh, maybe you are in an area where you have uh, access to uh, nutrient-rich soil. Maybe you live in an urban community. Maybe you don't have access to a garden. Well, these particular tower gardens, you can uh, grow uh, your own produce within the confines of your own home. If you want to grow them on the balcony, that's fine. If you want to have something that can be grown 24-7-365, you can grow them inside, and it comes with a, uh, a light system. But uh, before I go any further, I definitely want to give uh, the goddess soul. She's been waiting very patiently for over an hour. So I want to definitely give her opportunity to speak. I was listening to everyone speak, uh, especially Tylee and Chad. I know those are the two people who are speaking. And um, I enjoyed listening to everything you had to say. There's a few things I had jotted down. Um, I know that they weren't necessarily mentioned. I don't know like, what everyone's gauges as far as what they're aware of um what i wanted to say is i had jotted just a few things down so forgive me if it's not the um the cleanest um so i'll just begin i guess from the top so deeper than not allowing you to have seeded fruit because you'll not be able to regrow the plant um most most nine times out of ten you're not able to regrow it even if you find a seed because it's genetically modified. And the seedless crop is a plan that has been implemented over an extended period of time because when you have truly organic plants, there are some foods that allow you to tap into divine information because more than food sustaining your physical body for nourishment, they sustain your spiritual being as though they provide light codes from the sun they absorb and the roots that dig deep in the soil tapped into the earth. Another thing we gotta remember 
you know, as melanated beings, if we are tribal, so this is, I know the topic of discussion was tribal agriculture. Um, we know that we come from, and if we know that we come from indigenous background, then we know that we don't come from the same place. We are not essentially one people. There was a point in time when the entire earth had people of the same hue. However, that did not mean that they were of the same group or descent. To be tribal means that we had many tribes. Tribal does not mean one tribe. Therefore, we do not have the same culture amongst ourselves. Meaning we don't have the same, excuse me, we don't have the same way of life. Uh, since our last fall, because we are people who fell from our heights. Um, since our last fall, we have been split up and mixed up and under and under a grand spell. A spell we are still under to a certain degree. Some of us are awakening from our slumber, and in doing so, we still have a hazy fog clouding us as we find our way. So what I mean by that is you have people who are learning diets, whether it be veganism, keto, paleo, whatever it is. You have people um, learning about their roots, whether they think they are Moors, whether they feel like they're indigenous to the Americas, whatever, so have you, like, whatever you think, there are people who feel like they're from the Sirius star system, they're from, they're celestials, you know, we have, we are a spiritual people, to be indigenous means you are spiritual, you cannot separate the two, we are not a physical people, and although we are not one people, even though we have, we share the same skin tone, we all have a kink to our hair, that does not mean that we don't, in a sense, come from different stars. Like tribal is deeper than than um just the tribes of this planet. Like we come from tribes of the universe, and um we have to remember that we have different ways of life. And right now on this planet, we are so def that like most of us, not most of us, because obviously we're not in the same category. Being not being those who are not a sheep or a sheep or people who are dead. Um, we know that we are not like the ones who are them. However, we have a common enemy. Like we have a common, and it's not the white man and none of that. It's not none of that. It's a spiritual war. You know, there are principles. It's a battle of principality. We must override and overcome the battles against us. And the first battle is confusion. So when we're when we're waking up from this spell again, like I said, we we still have a haze over us, a fog, and we're searching to find our way. We're so, like it's like when you first wake up out of a slumber in the middle of the night, you know you want to go get a drink of water. Sometimes you a little stumbly, you know it's your home and you know your way around it. You're still stumbling in the dark, trying to find your way to to get that little cup of water, and um, it's deeper than the physical. So we got to be in tune with the spiritual and being in tune with the spiritual means seeing past their plans. We all comprehend, you know, the whole world, I feel like, has been waking up to what's been going on when this pandemic hit. Right. And we call it a pandemic. We comprehend that there's the Peter Pan, you know, the the goat God. Like this is not this is not just what should I say? This is not just like a coincidence. This is this has been planned for a very, very long time. And we must be aware of what's happening. So with the crops and all of that, like being shut down and being sprayed and and um, being killed off, we have to comprehend that it's either, it's one of two things. It's either a distraction tactic or it's the testamental aptitude. Or it could be both, to be honest. 
And I feel like if we comprehend that the crops are being destroyed, we comprehend that there are 60,000 Afghanistan people coming over here. We comprehend that there's a lot of things going on. They're pushing vaccines. They're taking away from your breath. We got to be aware of how we're going to engage with with the circumstances we're dealing with. And personally, I don't know if it because I kind of joined probably most likely late. So I don't know if y'all talked about fasting um, or anything of that nature. As much as having your own crops and your own and your own plants is good and all that, you're going to have to get light. You know, that's the whole point. And I just want to I'm sorry I'm, if I'm going a little all over the place. No, no, no problem. Yeah, we're just running out of time. I really, I really, really appreciate your uh, your comments. I, I'm over here taking notes of what you're saying. Uh, fortunately, we have to uh, wrap the show uh, here in a, in a couple seconds. And um, but uh, definitely uh, and we're going to have we're going to actually be talking about some uh, next week's topic is going to be. Uh, dealing with a lot of the things that you're referring to from the spiritual aspect. So I definitely want to invite you to come back next week. I'm following you, and uh, you can follow me back, and I can go ahead and invite you for the Sovereign Creek community. You can come back. But I appreciate that. But, uh, yes, um, do we have any other questions before I uh, wrap the show? All right. So I want to, first of all, I just want to say thank you to uh, Ty Lee and Jio for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know, Ty Lee, you're actually in the process of moving. So I really want to uh, really extend my, my gratitude toward, toward you uh, for taking a, a moment to share with us. Um, I also want to give you an opportunity to both of you to... How can we get in contact with you? If someone from the audience has some further questions and, and, and like to... Uh, you know, seek your expertise. How could they? How could they get in contact with you? First, you, Tylee, and then uh, Jaya. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Tylee Edible Designer, and um, I'm also on Facebook, Tylee Quilar Shiamaru. Um, so those would be the two ways you can reach me, and um, I also have a website for my herbal soaps, which is um, Oni Sani naturals.com but it's on my IG um, up in the, the link um, I just want to give a special shout out I've seen Dr. Um, Pilon in the audience um, he was, he's one of my inspirations for being in this uh, indigenous um, science and really um, taking on this um, learning to be this indigenous doctor and um, just the food is, you know becoming a chef and learning how to cook um, indigenously, I was always inspired by his post, so I just want to give him some flowers uh, and thank him for his guidance and all his help. Um, you've been very inspirational to me in my journey. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. How can we get in contact with you? Oh, yeah, so y'all can reach me through uh, Instagram. I have a, a, a link tree where um, you can you know, if you want to schedule a consultation or, or anything uh, around the certain topics that we um, previously discussed or to expound on it, you can, you know, either DM me or, or reach me there. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the inaugural episode of the, this is not the inaugural episode. That is obviously a typo. <laughs> this is like our fifth episode. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sovereign Creed. 
And definitely check out our website, www.sovereigncreed.shop, to purchase our line of provocative apparel. I want to give a special thanks to our guests one more time, Tylee Shiamaru and Jael Obatala Shiamaru Bay, for joining us today. Shout out to our producer, Cindy Ashby. She is the real MVP for making this possible. If you haven't done so already, please make sure you go sign up for www.otwtube.com so you can join our community of melanated Aboriginal content creators where your voice can be heard and you never have to worry about censorship. Tune in for the next episode on Wednesday, September 29th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Central, as we invite a very special guest, Dr. Powatun Kukuklan Shi Amaru, as we discuss indigenous cosmology versus Western world religion. We won't, you won't want to miss that. We don't just discuss the problems, we offer the solutions. I'm your host, J.I. Lee Shi Amaru, and this is on the Wake Up Radio. Thank you. We at Sovereign Creed are dedicated to the nurturing, preserving, and protecting of the Aboriginal American family. We are aligned with the customs and beliefs practiced by our Indigenous American ancestors and will continue to ensure that their legacy lives on with everything that we do. Look it up. Flawed individual. Thanks for keeping the lights on, Dian. Cindy Ashby 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 Ashby